Hello, everyone, and welcome to this Kubernetes Unpacked podcast episode. My name is Christina Dochko. I'm Michael Levan. And today we're going to chat with Evis Trinova um, about all things artificial intelligence, which is a very hot and popular topic these days. But we will specifically chat about artificial intelligence in context of Kubernetes and how it's hanging together. So, hello, Evis, and welcome. How are you doing today? Hey, yeah, thanks for, for having me. Uh, I'm doing well. I'm in... In San Francisco, it's nice and sunny. You know, we've had some some good weather lately, so I can't complain. Oh, uh, <laughs> I can imagine that we have quite it's quite hot these days. Too hot for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in New Jersey, we're we're finally getting summer weather. It feels like uh, usually our summer kicks off like May June, but in May and June was just cold and rainy, and it, it kind of felt like we were in Florida for a while. So luckily, we're um, we got got a little bit of summertime here now. <laughs> nice. Yeah, I'm, I'm originally from Boston, so I'm, nice. I'm yeah used to the sort of northeast humidity that comes in the summer and yeah the high temperatures and um, yeah San Francisco and the West Coast has been a little bit of a reprieve, which which has been nice. Oh yeah, it's uh, it's it's always fun, especially with leather interior in your car. It's uh, always a always a great thing. <laughs> <laughs> cool. So. Kubernetes and AI, I, I think that uh, obviously just with like ChatGPT and AI in general, it's there's just been a lot of talk about it as a whole and the whole generative AI thing, but not too much around Kubernetes. I mean, we see Kate's GPT, which is an awesome tool, an awesome platform. Uh, we've seen, you know, a couple of different case studies, I think, from OpenAI and how they're running Kubernetes for OpenAI. And I know that there's like a few tools now integrating like ChatGPT and stuff. Like I think Cubescape is now integrating ChatGPT into its um, incident response and analysis piece of the platform. But that's, to be honest with you, that's about, oh, and Kubeflow. But that's about all I know when it comes to Kubernetes and AI. And I'm, I'm assuming there are a bunch of other things, which is why we're all here today. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, Kubeflow has, has been around for a little bit and in some ways I think is the kind of the standard for deploying machine learning applications onto Kubernetes. So it's been great to, you know, to see that come out of the project. And, um, you know, I think there's so many different ways that sort of AI can be instantiated in Kubernetes and so many different use cases for it. You know, like in my mind, at least, I kind of break it down into two, two kind of big categories. One is the process of deploying AI models onto Kubernetes. And I think to your point, you know, OpenAI is a really interesting use case. They're they're probably on the far end of the spectrum in terms of you know usage and and sort of resources. And you know, I, I remember reading the the case study recently, and they had something like seventy five hundred nodes that they were running, which is most than I think most companies will use. Um, but it's cool to see that obviously you know Kubernetes can can kind of reach that scale and work really well for them. And then you know, for me, like the other big category is. How, how do teams, platform teams, DevOps teams, engineering teams use Kubernetes or use AI to run Kubernetes more efficiently, you know, more faster, you know, reduce cloud costs. And there's a lot, I think, happening there too. So, um, yeah, it's been cool to see kind of a, you know, AI get placed in the Kubernetes domain. And, um, yeah, I expect to see more coming, you know, over the next couple of months, definitely in the next couple of years. I think cast AI as well, right? I, I guess it's obviously in the name. Uh, <laughs> But I know that they're using a lot of stuff uh, around generative AI, right? To kind of like uh, for for modeling around the the um, the Kubernetes cluster costs, if I'm not mistaken. 
Yeah, and I expect companies like Kubeflow um, or KubeCost rather will, will probably do something similar. I think they're they're pretty big in the open source world. Yeah. Um, so I'd be shocked if they didn't come out with some some version of that. Um, but, you know, it's a big opportunity, right? Like I think nowadays, yeah, you know, everybody's worried about cloud costs, especially just given the macroeconomic condition. And so when you have something as powerful and and as widespread as you know AI, generative AI, and and what it can do, I think it only makes sense to try and apply it to utilizing your resources correctly, finding the right hardware to run your clusters on, being able to switch out that hardware. That's something that I'm starting to see more of is customers almost treating you know, the underlying hardware as just like these primitives that you're able to swap in and swap out for mainly for cost uh, purposes. And so I think you know, there's just a lot of value to be had there for, for companies right? As, as, as they start to get started on their Kubernetes journey is how do they optimize their costs and do that in a way that's intelligent and, and flexible. I mean, we have seen it in general in the industry these days, how fast it has, the development has been happening the, for the last months. And like uh, almost, I don't know, it feels like almost every product, every piece of software is starting to see options and integrating the AI capabilities for different reasons, of course. And that was just a matter of time. It didn't to take quite long for it to happen in the Kubernetes ecosystem as well. Uh, so I totally can agree with you that uh, this is kind of exciting time ahead. And I think more tools uh, related to like utilization of AI in Kubernetes will uh, will kind of evolve, uh, evolve as well. Uh, and I do believe getting some help for the Kubernetes administrators in their daily work in terms of troubleshooting, like uh, case GPT could help with, or in terms of how to reduce the costs or even run the workloads on Kubernetes clusters efficiently is totally beneficial. But I just want to ask, like, I, I want to get the cat out of the bag and uh, with all the fears and discussions being lifted in the space related with AI, I think it makes sense to ask a question here as well. Like, does uh, integration of AI into Kubernetes mean that we would not need Kubernetes administrators anymore or platform engineers? What is your take on that fear? I think it's a really fair question. And um, yeah, at least from my perspective, I try to look back like historically as new sort of like, I guess you can call them step functions and technology have come out, you know, tools that have made everybody much faster and more productive at their jobs. Um, I don't think those roles have really ever gone away. I think they've just kind of transitioned and evolved. You know, I probably talked to five to 10 DevOps engineers a week um, slash platform engineers. And the theme that I always see is that everybody just kind of feels like they're uh, they're on fire in some ways. You know, it's like I, I think of the like classic meme. It's like the the dog drinking coffee and there's fire everywhere, and he's like, "This is fine." <laughs> I kind of think that's how most DevOps uh, and platform engineers kind of feel a lot of the times. And so I think if applied correctly, I think AI yeah, can kind of help can kind of help them get out of that and really help them be value add to the business instead of just constantly feeling like they're on this you know, ticket assembly line where they're like, oh man, I just got to keep up with these tickets and kind of be able to be a little bit more strategic. That, that's my hope for it. You know, I'm sure there's going to be some folks who maybe argue the, the other side would say, well, I can just have AI kind of manage all these clusters, but, you know, chat GPT and generative AI certainly isn't perfect. Um, you see that a lot. Mm-hmm. And so to me, there's still a real fear to have kind of, you know, AI run your clusters for you without really having somebody overlook it. I think it works well as a sidekick. I don't think it works well as the main character. And that's my hope for how, how this works out. Um, but it'll be interesting. It'll be interesting to see kind of uh, practitioners and, and engineers kind of response to it within their day-to-day jobs. What do, you, what do you guys think? Oh, Michael, what do you think? 
I think that we're going to see kind of a similar trend to when automation started to become, you know, it was the, it was the hot new thing. Everybody was writing code to perform tasks and stuff like that. I remember the conversations that we would constantly have and those conversations sounded something like, uh oh, this stuff is going to take away our jobs. Uh oh, we're not going to have administrators anymore. Uh oh, we're going to cut down half of, you know, our working force. Uh, and the reality is, is that automation and code arguably made things harder in a sense. We had to hire more specialists. We had to bring on more people. People needed to learn how to write code because to perform the uh, automation repeatability, we had to learn coding at that point. If you were, you know, on the sysadmin and the infrastructure engineer side. So I think the things, and this is historically the way that we see it, the things that come in that that we all kind of think, oh, it's going to take away jobs or it's going to um, uh, eliminate uh, uh, job um, positions and stuff like that. They arguably end up, like you said, to your point, not only transforming them, but adding an extra layer of need on top of it, which kind of locks you into your job a little bit more and creates a little bit more job security. And I can kind of see the same thing around AI because let's be honest. So number one, AI is not a new thing. We've AI has been around for like 50 years at this point or 40, 40 to 50 years, not in the, not in the context that we're using it right now, but the idea of artificial intelligence and machine learning, like this is not a new concept. We've seen this for a long time. So the, the idea around it is if we're going to be implementing it in, you know, our day-to-day Kubernetes operations or our Kubernetes development, or if products are implementing it in, that means engineers now need to learn machine learning for their day-to-day, AI concepts for their day-to-day, perhaps not building data models and data sets, but understanding how to manipulate those data sets and those data models, understanding how to train those data sets and those data models. So I think bringing in AI is actually going to increase the need for engineers because they're going to have to level up and the engineers that are good, they're going to be able to uh, name their price in terms of salaries. Just like when DevOps titles first started coming around, uh, you know, maybe 2015, 2016, 2017, we saw more DevOps titles. And when those titles came out and you had engineers that knew how to code and also understood the infrastructure piece, they were naming their price. You know, their salaries went from 110 to 190 overnight because they could name their price because not everybody was doing it. And I think that it'll be the same way incorporating this whole, you know, quote, AI ops thing into, you know, our platform engineering. Yeah, I, you know, I think that the thing I would add on top of that, I totally agree, is when you think about, I think most people think of ChatGPT as, you know, or any of these generative services, you know, most people use them through the interface or use them through the API. But when you look at the enterprise context, they want to run their own models, right? They want to train on their own data. So now as a, you know, as a DevOps or a platform team, you're now not only responsible for your clusters, but you're also responsible for these models and making sure that they run. So to your point about having to, you know, upscale and level up, you know, you have to learn all these new concepts of, you know, what are embeddings databases? What are vector databases? How do these things work at scale? And how do we make sure that they're running correctly? So I totally agree. I think the need for, you know, good, smart DevOps and platform teams is only going to increase because they're now having 
to kind of manage one more thing. And that thing is, is you know, fairly complex and it's not necessarily new, but it's new in the way that's been, you know, recently instantiated. Um, so I'm really curious to see kind of how this plays out. And I think it's, I think it's a good thing overall for the industry. Yeah, I can. Um, I think uh, I totally agree with your with your points there. I think that uh, this this does uh, have some additional uh, challenges or things that uh, the platform teams would need to maintain. But at the same time, in the long term, that can also bring a lot of value to to the enterprises and also will help the platform engineers to do their work efficiently and maybe focus on other tasks that are more exciting for for them as well. I have seen. I have seen this with myself and my daily work as well, even uh, like when working with development or when, when working with uh, specifically with operating uh, workloads on Kubernetes. I, I, I see that there is a benefit in kind of doing, getting some help uh, from uh, ChatGPT even to generate some additional text that I would use more time, for example, to add to the to the description of, uh, of a pull request, for instance, a very simple a very simple task that I could spare a few minutes per per pull request that uh, I am adding. So I, I mean, in the long run, that could really bring that value and help you help you focus on what you think is most fun and brings most value to to kind of your uh, your daily responsibilities. I think that a lot of this fear is also I don't know overrated in a way uh, or create created too much uh, too much fear, but in the in the real life, it's um, actually a lot of benefits we could gain from that as well. Totally. In your practical, like in in the work that you have been doing recently, are there any like stories that you have to share or some examples where you, you've gained help from, uh, for instance, uh, working with AI in Kubernetes context? Yeah, for us, I, th- I think probably similar to you, like, you know, the... The interesting thing about Kubernetes is like there, there's so many knobs to turn and to twist, um, and you sometimes you know have to give be reminded of like what is what does max unavailable mean, what does max available storage mean, kind of like all these parameters that you'd set. You're know, like, what's the right way to configure this? And kind of like like I said earlier, I, I think Gen AI can be a really good sidekick for you to remember like, hey, what does this parameter exactly do, and how does this exactly work again? And that's been helpful for you know for me and for us is really just to. Um, kind of get that nice reminder and have that uh, you know, have that tool right next to you where you're, where you're working in your day-to-day, you're, whether you're like writing operators or working with CRDs or whatever it is, just being able to have a nice reminder of, oh, that's right, based on what I want, you know, based on what the business is trying to accomplish and, and what I want, this is the right way to, to configure that. And it's, it, you know, it's, it's a nice reminder of like, that, that's how this works again. If you're trying to do some root cause analysis and you're getting some you know, esoteric like error code. Like, okay, I can I can at least look it up here and see: Am I on the right path? Am I thinking about this in the right way? So practically, that's been really helpful for us and and for me personally. You know, we're just starting to think about running models on Kubernetes and trying to think about what does that actually practically mean. And you know, we're we're looking at things like Kubeflow to be able to do that today. The other place that's actually been that's been pretty helpful too, and I don't know if this is a good example or not, but it's definitely been helpful for me is. Just being able to write really good Docker files, <laughs> like you know, I don't write them often. Um, so I kind of yeah, every now and then I don't always remember like, oh yeah, I should be doing this. Like this is the best practice, and so it's nice just to pass that through Kubernetes and say like, or through uh, something like ChatGPT and say, hey, you know, give me a basic Docker file that I can start with. So just being you know, taking out some of that lower level thinking in some ways, and just being able to work on maybe a little bit of a higher level. 
that, that's what I found personally useful is just some of these like more mundane tasks that I'm like, oh yeah, I forget about that. And, you know, it take me maybe 15 minutes to go look it up. I can get it done in you know, a minute or two. So one thing I'm curious about if, if you're able to share any of the, uh, <laughs> the information, but uh, you know, being the CEO of Nucleus and having kind of like the first steps into this Kubernetes AI thing, because obviously not a whole lot of people are talking about it just yet. It's kind of, it's still up and coming like you suggested, but it's obviously a big uh, interest or focal point for you. Um, Are you planning on implementing anything from like a generative AI perspective, like into the architecture of how Nucleus works? Yeah, we actually already have. Um, nice. The way that we've done it is, is not so much Kubernetes-based specifically, that we've done it on our documentation. And so within our you know, within our dashboard today, somebody can go in and we have a kind of a, a slider or a drawer that slides out, and that's been trained on our docs. And so instead of having to you know, place links everywhere within our dashboard, within our application, say, you know, see here for more guides or for more answers, and then they get you know, sent out to an external page and they kind of have to look things up, um, they can just ask a lot of those questions in real time. And so every time we uh, make changes to our docs, that, that model gets retrained um, and then that gets presented back in the dashboard. So that's been our kind of first step into this is thinking, okay, I'm a customer, I'm a user, I'm trying to do something in the Nucleus dashboard on the Nucleus platform, but I don't, I don't maybe know how to do that exactly. I don't want to go search through all the documentation. Instead, can I just ask, how do I set environment variables on this, you know, on this container? How do I deploy something? How do I create a new cluster? Um, and we found that's been super helpful and just gotten really good feedback from it. So, you know, we're constantly kind of iterating on that. And, you know, I think because Gen AI obviously isn't perfect, you kind of have to have some, some fallbacks. So we mm-hmm. still show, for example, links to the documentation of, uh, of where, you know, the AI model is able to get the answer from. So like you can still go to the source if you need to, right? Or if you're like, hey, I need more information on how to do this. Um, so that's been our first kind of step into it. And we definitely have a couple more things that we're thinking about. Um, I think the big one for us next is probably going to be around observability. Mm. Um, if you're starting to see errors, if your pods are in a crash loop, um, trying to get more information in terms of why that's happening. Um, so I definitely see us implementing that more kind of thoroughly. Um, and then lastly, probably it's just going to be around cost. Um, it's just so top of mind for everybody, and I can assume it will be. Um, so I think being able to integrate that natively into the platform is going to be really interesting for us um, and giving folks a more proactive instead of reactive idea on what something could cost um, so they can make smarter decisions based on the type of workload that they're running, where they want to run it, their compute requirements, and et cetera. I got I to gotta ask the... Um... I got to ask the tough question. I was, it's funny. I was actually just talking uh, about this with a friend last night. Do you think that, and I'm thinking about it now because you're bringing up, up uh, docs, right? And people not wanting to look through the docs and figure out the problems and stuff like that. Do you think that something like, for example, oh, hey, I don't have to look at the docs anymore. I just have to ask this question or I don't have to do the research anymore. I just have to ask this question. Do you think that it will, how can I put it gently, dumb people down? Mm. Well, what, are, what are your kind of thoughts on that? I know this, that's outside of Kubernetes, but I'm just, uh, I'm just kind of curious on your, on your thoughts and Christina's thoughts on that. <laughs> it's, it's, that's it's, a tough one. <laughs> good luck. <laughs> you know, the good thing is it's not about us directly, so it's okay. No, I'm just kidding. It's, uh, it's, it's a totally fair question. I mean, I think 
like the analogy I have in my head right now is is like everybody was programming C back in the day and then Python came out and they were like, do we think that's going to make people worse programmers because they no longer have mm. to learn how to do memory allocation and do all these low-level things? But I think in reality, you know, the people who want to kind of go down to that level and program at that level will want to. And I think mm. in my mind, that's kind of analogous here where it's like, can you give somebody the quick answer but still give them a way to, to go and do the in-depth research? Mm-hmm. Um, because I think like a lot of the times, you know, in my experience, at least, it gets kind of annoying searching through docs for the answer. And you're like, mm-hmm. I, I just care about this one small thing. I'm not having to read, you know, pages and pages and trying to figure out where exactly this thing is. And so um, I definitely think you'll have some people who take advantage of it who like, who just want the quick answer and don't really want to do the deeper research. Um, and for some use cases, maybe that's fine. If you're doing something simple, if you're like, how do I set an environment variable in this thing? That's probably okay. But if you're trying to get a deeper, sort of more, like more fundamental understanding of how something works, I think the people who care about that will always want to go back to the source um, and will always want to read through it and, and really kind of understand it. So I don't know if it'll dumb people down necessarily, but I think it will give them you know a quick answer to maybe a small question that they care about. But with that being said, you know I'll I'll take the kind of I'll play devil's advocate to my own point here. I have seen. You know, particularly like uh, professors in academic settings talk about how, you know, they have students, CS students who are using GitHub Copilot mm-hmm. and they're kind of just like trying some code, you know, clicking the iterate button on GitHub Copilot because it's not working the first time and not really understanding the fundamentals of why something's not working. And so that I, I think is a little bit of a fear um, is that people are just going to want to get to the right answer and not really kind of understand why, how, why and how things are working. Um, so that, that was a pretty interesting kind of like observation I, I had mm-hmm. seen where particularly these professors were saying students aren't really caring about the the sort of like the theory. They're just kind of trying to iterate and using Copilot to just to get to the right answer so they can just move on. So curious to see kind of what the long-term effects of that going to be. Yeah. And that's, that's the scary part for me, to be honest. So like when I'm, when I'm talking or thinking about, you know, the whole dumb people down thing, that's exactly what I'm referring to because, you know, you could argue that something similar happened when Google came out, you know, before Google, you had to read a book and you had to think and you had to, you know, figure out, oh, where is this piece of knowledge? Where is this piece of information? But the difference was, yeah, you could ask a question in Google, but you had to go through multiple links. You had to go through multiple steps. You had to still do the research. Whereas with something like, you know, ChatGPT or whatever, like you don't do that anymore. You just like ask the question like you would in Google and the answer randomly pops up. You don't necessarily have to think, which is the, I think the catastrophic piece to this is, you know, you're going to have the people, like you said, that always want to do the research, always want to dive deep, et cetera. But a large part of the population is not going to want to, because as humans, we are literally designed from a psychology perspective to take the easier road. It's just how our brains work. You know, that's why if we look and if we say, oh, do we want to build a house and sit outside for 10 hours in 90 degree weather? Or do we want to sit on the couch and eat, eat ice cream? Our brains are going to be like, ah, ice cream on the couch. It sounds way better than building a house for 10 hours. It's just kind of the way that we're designed. And that's that's my fear about this stuff more or less is it's not going to allow people to like either a reach their full potential or b want to think anymore and then you know like you said with the whole college professor thing where students like just want to know the answer they're just generating it and boom that's it is this what we're preparing 
for our, the next wave of engineers, for the next wave of developers, where, you know, now there, there's this standing, you know, joke of if a developer can't find, you know, the answer on Stack Overflow in five minutes, they think it can't be done. Mm-hmm. Is this just the next phase of that? And therefore, what is our infrastructure? What is our code? What are our applications from a quality perspective going to look like in the next wave of engineering? That's kind of scary to me. I don't know if you have seen for a week or two ago, the chat GPT was actually ex- experiencing uh, downtime. And also like the discussions that came out of there is that some people were actually getting panic. And this kind of illustrates the human nature where we get quickly get used to like getting that quick, that quick help without kind of using time to find that answer. But apart from that, my, my concern is also uh, related to kind of the quality of the answers and the quality of resources that will be out there in the internet, which we already are seeing now. Like, which sources will you actually be able to trust? Like, since this is human nature, it also applies to, for instance, content creators that can just use ChatGPT and create this generated um, content that looks very much like, which I have already been discussing with some other community members, which we have seen happening and kind of seen the resources like books, for instance, or blog posts that may have an official author, but you actually don't know if that's the author's own Mm -hmm. opinions or if he just or she used the shortcut and just pasted in what has been generated. So I think this also puts an additional responsibility on kind of us to both teach the new generation that will come and also to us as creators of that information, of that content ourselves, to kind of not just rely on the answers we get from artificial intelligence, but also quality checking, modifying it, adding a personalized touch, which makes it special for the for the others to read and, and watch and whatever. And I think hopefully maybe some of the regulations we will see in future could could help us pay more attention to this aspect as well yeah i mean i think i think you bring up in my my opinion probably the most important point which is just the correctness of the information and i think you know at some point when we've gone this far without it you know you you kind of have a general context if you're looking something up you're like you, you know you look something up on chat you're like that kind of doesn't feel right to me so i'm just going to do a double check but if you end up growing up on the system and, you know, you could say that, sure, it's going to get better over time and I'm, and I'm sure it will, but you kind of maybe start to lose a little bit of that context. You, you lose a little bit of that intuition. You're like, I don't know if this is exactly right, or I don't know if this is telling you to do the right thing. You know, AI hallucinations are a big topic these days um, and you see them everywhere. And so ChatGPT, you know, just gives you an answer. It doesn't give you a feeling of an answer. And so you don't really know, like, hey, how, how confident are you in the answer that you're giving me? And so, you know, if you go back to the student example where you maybe haven't developed that intuition and haven't developed that context of like, hey, this this doesn't feel like it's right. I need to go do some more research. You start more blindly accepting what it's telling you. And mm-hmm. you kind of just assume, hey, I'm assuming this is right. And so if you put that in like the engineering context, you know, you're maybe writing code or copying and pasting code that maybe has security vulnerabilities, maybe has memory leaks, right? Maybe isn't correct in some way. That if you had a little bit more context and you maybe did a little more of the quote-unquote work, um, you would have that gut feeling of like, I don't know if that's the right thing to be doing here or I should be making this tweak. And so I think that's where that's what worries me the most is just that blind trust of mm-hmm. I'm going to take what it's telling me as, as fact 
without really needing to do a little bit, a little bit more of my own research and see, hey, is this actually the right thing to do? Makes sense. So thinking about the, uh, let's let's call it the top three things that AI can kind of help with when it comes to Kubernetes with just based on everything we talked about, you know, throughout this whole episode, the three things that we could definitely look at generative AI for when it comes to Kubernetes. Uh, since there's three people here, we'll go ahead and give each of our answers. So my mine is uh, troubleshooting. So for example, uh, if you have, you know, a hundred lines of logs and you don't want to look through each line one by one, you can perhaps use generative AI to pull out the information for you. Um, that way it's not necessarily guessing for you, but it's just making the troubleshooting process a little bit shorter. And I think that kind of takes away the busy work a little bit from that perspective. How about you, Christina? I'm going to go with cost optimization and sustainability because this kind of boils down to all not only optimize the usage of resources, but also using them efficiently. So kind of getting that recommendations, getting that AI capabilities to kind of learn the patterns, learn the behavior of your workloads and how your clusters are uh, operating and kind of giving you that option to use the resources efficiently and scale scale down when you don't need them uh, would would be a total value for uh, for the companies. Perfect. Evis, how about you? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, I would just echo Christina's point here. I think for us, you know, I talked to a lot of CTOs, I talked to a lot of developers, a lot of DevOps engineers, and um, cost and resource optimization is, I think, by far and away the number one thing that I'm hearing from folks. And, you know, whether it's a macroeconomic condition or whether it's just you just want to utilize your resources better, that's where I'm seeing a lot of promise in the space. And it'll be really interesting to see kind of how that actually um, comes to life and in what form factor, whether it's a chat interface, which in my opinion is not the best interface for AI. Um, I think there's better interfaces for it, but I think that's where it can have just a really fast uh, measurable impact on helping companies save money, um, use what they have more efficiently, um, and just focus on what matters, right? At the end of the day, you wanna focus on building something that people like, that they care about, that they want, and how do you get your entire, you know, all of your teams to focus on that and not spend time thinking about resource allocation? So that just doesn't help the end customer, right? That's just an internal thing to help the company. And so anything that can make the team a little bit more focused on what actually matters, I think can have, can just drive a lot of value for teams, like for companies. Perfect. So you hear, you heard it here first, folks. Those are the, those are the two to three things that uh, everybody should be thinking about when it comes to AI and Kubernetes. So wrapping up here, Evis, I'd like to give you the opportunity to plug away. Please plug away uh, your company. If you've done any content courses, anything you want. Oh, I appreciate it. Yeah, I'll, I'll do a small plug. Um, so yeah, we're, we're Nucleus. We're a Kubernetes developer platform. The idea is to help teams, both small and big, uh, with day one and day two operations. So if you want to get started on Kubernetes, we're, my opinion, the easiest and fastest way to do that. And then if you already have uh, clusters and nodes, whether it's um, you know across really almost any cloud, um, I think we can really help manage that and sort of help you get out of that. You know, this is fine. I'm surrounded by fire type of mentality. And as far as content goes, you know, I, I publish uh, some some blogs on LinkedIn. Um, you know, check those out. Um, and and happy to you know talk with anybody who has any questions on Kubernetes on, on what we're doing at Nucleus. And yeah, I appreciate the plug. Awesome, cool. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate it. And uh, I think we're about good to wrap up. Christina, you got anything else? 
Oh, I think that uh, there was a great uh, discussion, Evis. So maybe just to fully wrap up, if you have any recommendations of like resources or tools that the audience can check out to kind of get familiarized if they're totally beginners when it comes to kind of AI and in Kubernetes, if there is anything you would like to recommend? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. You know, I think depending on sort of what you're interested in, if you're if you're trying to figure out how to deploy models onto onto Kubernetes, um, Kubeflow has worked really well for us. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll definitely recommend that. Um, if you're trying to think about how to, you know, if you're a DevOps or platform engineer thinking about how do I use AI within just my day to day and to help me, so far ChatGPT and you know Claude and and sort of all these other chatbot interfaces have been have been decent for for me. Um, they've been a sidekick. You know, like I said, not the main character. So I would you know, recommend checking those out and always just being a little bit skeptical uh, about anything that you see generally online is, is my approach, but definitely when it comes to Gen AI. But I think, yeah, I'm excited to see where these things go and as more resources come up, I'll definitely be talking about them. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time and thanks to everyone listening into this episode. Yeah, thank you so much for joining. Really appreciate it. Thanks, everyone.